Hi there, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Matthew Algio, the author of The President is a Sick Man, wherein the supposedly virtuous Grover Cleveland survives a secret surgery at sea and vilifies the courageous newspaper man who dared to expose the truth. He's written six books. He considers himself an unlicensed historian. He lives in Bosnia. This is not our only book with the longest, this is not only the uh, book with the longest subtitle, it's also easily our longest range interview. So that's exciting too. (laughs) Uh, Thanks so much for being here, Matthew. You're welcome, Evan. I'm glad to be here. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Okay, Grover Cleveland. He is the answer to the quintessential trivia question of the American presidency, being the only one to serve two non-consecutive terms. He's number 22 and number 24. But until I read Matt's book back in 2011, I didn't know that Cleveland had a secret, secret surgery on a boat to remove cancer. And so I started hearing echoes of Cleveland's story when President Trump had to be taken to Walter Reed for treatment for coronavirus. Now, unlike in 2020, in 1893, there were no live TV feeds from the White House. All of America couldn't watch Grover Cleveland being taken away. You say, Matthew, it was a brazen political cover-up that was as diabolical as Watergate, but also you say infinitely more successful. So before we tell the story of what happened, how long did it take for this uh, surgery, the details of it, to be leaked? Actually, the the surgery itself took place in uh, July of 1893, and uh, the, the full story didn't become known until 1917. This was after Grover Cleveland had already passed away, of course, and one of the doctors, who was very old, uh, finally published the full account of what happened on that boat in 1893. Uh, the doctor, William Williams Keene, very, very famous doctor uh, from Philadelphia, uh, chose to publish his account, however, in the Saturday Evening Post, and not a a major medical journal, which was kind of an interesting uh, interesting decision on his part. But yeah, so the surgery takes place in 1893. Grover wants to keep it a secret, and he really did succeed until 1917. Now, you know, for those of us who are, uh, well, all of us are now 100 years uh, in the future, um, you know, you hear 1893 to 1917, and well, you might think, well, that's not that long because we don't, you know, we have the compression of time, and it's mm-hmm. like sort of all in this proverbial past. But that's 24 years where people sat on this. Yeah, so uh, uh, don't make me do the math here, what you're talking back to like 1996, if something had happened and then the truth had come out. Um, and, and of course, uh, as I said, Cleveland uh, was deceased at that time. And uh, his wife, his, his widow, allowed the doctor to go ahead and, and finally publish the account of this operation. So um, it was a long time. Uh, a lot happened between 1893 And uh, 1917, you're really talking about the transformation of the American presidency, McKinley, the the Spanish-American War, Roosevelt comes in, World War I begins. So a lot happened between 1893 and 1917 when this finally came out. It must have seemed like very old. I think it seemed like a long time ago to the people in 1917 when this came out. That reminds me of um, 
Gerald Ford telling Thomas DeFrank to write it when I'm gone. And that was the title of uh, Tom DeFrank's <laughs> book. Um, all right. Uh, so uh, who was Stephen Grover Cleveland? Uh, that's another thing I didn't realize that Grover Cleveland had a first name, that that was his yeah. middle name. Um, who, our, yeah. our only Stephen president, I think. He's also the only Grover pl- pl- uh, right. president. Um, <laughs> he reminds me a lot of the people I know from Buffalo today, with all due respect to the people I love from no, Buffalo. I, uh, a burly guy who loved beer and found his way into serving the public. Right. Uh, I have no doubt he would be a very big Bills fan <laughs> if, uh, if he was around today. And uh, he, he was from, he was born in uh, Caldwell, New Jersey, actually. His father was a Presbyterian minister. But as a young man, he, uh, he moved to Buffalo. He studied law, uh, uh, never, never went to college. He, he read law as people did back then. And uh, he was a bachelor. Uh, he was born, uh, I think it was 1839. So he's really like, uh, you know, into his 40s. He's, he's single. He, he lives alone in Buffalo in an apartment. He likes to drink beer and smoke cigars. He likes to hang out in the saloons that uh, line the streets uh, leading to the docks on, on Lake Erie. And uh, he gets summoned. He's a Democrat, uh, which is kind of unusual in Buffalo at that time. And uh, the Democrats needed a candidate to run for mayor. Uh, in 1881. And so uh, actually the election was in 1880, but uh, he kind of got drafted into this reluctantly. Um, Everybody liked him. He had a very good reputation. He was one of these people that he wasn't really a natural politician, but but, uh, he he was very gregarious, I think. And uh, people liked him. He knew everybody. He'd been a lawyer for years. And so they asked him to run for mayor and he won. He ran against a very corrupt um, uh, administration at the time. So he was elected uh, mayor of, uh, of Buffalo in 1880, uh, governor of New York in 1882, and president of the United States in 1884. So, you know, in the space of four years, he went from a guy drinking beer in a saloon in Buffalo to Washington. The first time he'd ever been to Washington was when he stepped off the train for his inauguration. So it was a fairly meteoric rise for him. Uh, I guess other than Lincoln, um, although Lincoln, of course, had a national reputation um, that mm-hmm. he developed from being in the media and his speeches and whatever else. But um, this is a rapid rise. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of Wilson going from university president to governor to president. Um, but I, I'm trying to think of other presidents. It's, I guess it's Gerald tough. Ford, it's, maybe. I mean, yeah, you know, but, but he was I mean, in Congress for so long. I think about like, okay, so... Cleveland was elected in 1884. If you go back to the, the, the last election before a president was elected, four years, basically nobody had ever heard of Grover Cleveland right. four years before that election. I mean, right. it's really, uh, you know, Trump in a way, you know, but everybody had heard of him, obviously, although we didn't have any political resume, really. Um, so, yeah, you'd, it's really hard to find somebody who in the space of really four years went from obscurity minor local celebrity to, to president. It was kind of astounding. He is also the second, I believe, governor of New York to become president. You had um, Van Buren and then Cleveland, right. and then you have the two Roosevelt's. Yeah. Right. Is that about and, right? Uh, yeah. And um, it's oh. also interesting. Uh, Arthur? Uh, no. No, no, he wasn't. No, he was never he was controller yeah. of, yeah. A, of a collector of the port. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, Millard Fillmore was also from uh, Buffalo. Uh, so yeah. he, he was president, of course, in whatever, 1840s and 1850s. And so uh, 
an interesting overlapping of how Grover apparently would cross paths occasionally with old Millard in, in, in Buffalo. And, uh, you know, nobody would have ever believed that, uh, you know, Grover Cleveland would someday <laughs> occupy the same position that Millard Fillmore did. One of the great things about your book is that it's also a story of where America was in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, right. Explain where America is, what's going on, the fight over silver, and this becomes part of the right. scandal and everything. So just explain that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, you know, it's hard sometimes. Uh, I think, you know, Grover doesn't get, isn't very well remembered. And, you know, when they do these rankings, he's somewhere, you know, middle to lower tier. I think one of the problems that Grover had is that's the, the, the major issues of that day do not resonate with us today. Um, you've had tariffs, and you've had the gold standard. And, I, you know, I will not bore the fine people who've listened to your podcast with a long explanation of the debate between gold and silver. But trust me, um, you know, at the time, uh, money was backed by gold. And uh, as more silver was discovered in the West, and as the new states joined the Union from the West, Wyoming, Montana, 1880s, Washington State, um, the 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 representatives from those states began advocating for silver to also be um, uh, monetized for uh, for paper money to be issued based on how much silver the treasury has. That was bimetallism. So you had the gold standard, you had the silver rights who wanted gold and silver. Uh, uh, Grover was an old school conservative, Eastern pro business Democrat. He believed in the gold standard a hundred percent, and uh, he. Um, he was able really to win the support and he won New York state when he, uh, when he won uh, election in 1884, which was sort of like the swing state to win at the time, uh, partly because of his very, you know, pro business stand, um, pro uh, gold uh, stand. Uh, in, in 1892, then he, 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 he lost reelection of course in 1888, although he did win the popular vote. And then in 1892, he, he wins the white house back. So in 1892, it's really become a hot button issue gold versus silver. Uh, Cleveland wins the Democratic nomination, although a lot of Democrats didn't like his position on this issue. All the Democrats in the West and the South, they wanted to have uh, silver also be uh, a currency. And so what they did is they tacked on this vice president, Adley Stevenson was his name. He's the grandfather of the future presidential candidate. He was 100% a silver guy. It was a guy from Illinois. He, he was silver. So in a way, it would be like today having the president is pro-choice, uh, but to sort of, you know, balance the ticket, they have a pro-life vice president. I mean, really, Cleveland and Stevenson are diametrically opposed on the one major issue of the day in 1892. And so this became a problem when Cleveland discovers that he has cancer and he needs to have this operation. And oh, my God, if I die, Stevenson's going to become president. What's going to happen? You know, another big difference of uh, the 1880s and 90s and today is that in the last 24 years or so, or 28 years really, we've seen the presidency flip back and forth numerous times between the right. parties. We've rotated, you know, we've basically alternated um, Bush, Clinton, uh, Obama, uh, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden. Back then, it was Republicans ruled the roost until Grover Cleveland. Right. So basically, I mean, between the Civil War and World War One, Grover Cleveland's your only Democratic president. Um, you know, after uh, 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 Lincoln uh, was assassinated, then uh, uh, 
Johnson, who identified, I guess, his as sort of as a Democrat Republican. But uh, but but after Johnson, it's not until Wilson that we have another Democratic president besides Grover Cleveland. Um, so this also added a tremendous weight to Cleveland because at the time, huge patronage. I mean, he had 5,000 postmasters he had to assign. There were, and, and the Democrats didn't have uh, you know, a, a structure uh, at the executive level, a big national structure to do something like this. So this, again, was a thing that really wore down on Cleveland was the office seekers, the office seekers, my God, the office seekers. And, and so it's finally uh, a Democrat. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. So, and he has got to now fill all of these, you know, every, all the Republicans, they just carry over what the last guy did. It's not a big deal. Here, you got to fire everybody and bring new people in. So uh, again, when Cleveland, you know, I think that's one of the things that really added to the stress that Cleveland was feeling when he took office. And also, uh, now we're talking about 1893 in March when he takes office, huge economic downturn. Reading Railroad had gone bankrupt. And, uh, and that led to a panic, the panic of 1893. And it, it's interesting, I talk in the book a little bit, the railroads were almost like the internet. They were overbuilt. Everything was overbuilt. It was a bubble. They kept by, there were competing lines between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. You don't need three rail lines between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, this sort of thing. It was overbuilt, overbuilt, overbuilt. And finally, the bubble burst. Reading Railroad went bankrupt. All these industries that depended on railroads, from steel uh, to timber uh, to wire, uh, they all, you know, the dominoes fell. So it's, it's uh, March of 1893. Cleveland comes in, all these office seekers. He's got the vice president who he doesn't really like, and the economy's crashing. It was really not a great time to become president. Another wonderful thing about uh, your book um, is that you say that you're the first one to put this all into book form. Um, so at what point did you realize this is a story that had to be told? And what sources did you find and use? So um, I, I, I guess I learned about the operation. I'm, I'm from Philadelphia originally, and there's a great museum in Philadelphia called the Mütter Museum. And it is How a museum. Uh, it's M-U-T-T-E-R, but the okay. U has an umlaut. So it's Mütter. <laughs> and Mütter was the doctor's name that he, uh, God love him for keeping the umlaut. Right. Um, but, but it's a museum of medical history. And uh, they've got, oh, they've got the world's largest collection of objects removed from people's stomach like, you know, pins and coins and stuff, things like that. People love to um, collect things. No matter yes. what, who you're talking to, someone, exactly. everyone collects Some something. Some people collect butterflies. Other people collect buttons that people swallowed accidentally. So uh, this museum has got crazy stuff. They got a little piece of uh, Charles Guiteau's brain, stuff like that. But they have the tumor. They have Grover Cleveland's tumor in a jar that was removed from his mouth. And I remember going there and thinking, that's incredible. Um, that A, the operation took place, and B, they saved the tumor. Um, and they have a couple of, the, couple of the instruments as well. Well, this doctor, William Williams Keene, uh, who took part in the operation, he was the guy who actually saved the tumor and uh, later donated it to the Mütter Museum. And he also donated his papers, and that was a gold mine for primary research. That was really what opened the door to this, that he had all the correspondence and he had written, he was, oh my God, the guy could write. And he had done his own, he had done his memoirs for his family. And, and so that, that was really the, the gateway to, into be able to realize, and there's enough stuff here. So since we're talking tumors here, uh, let's describe in the 1890s what is known about cancer, because that's a big part of this story is how they're going to do this 
and I do want to get to when Cleveland realizes something is wrong, but right. uh, uh, describe what's known about this really horrible thing. And I, I did write down what, uh, what you called it, and I, now I'm forgetting where I wrote it down. Um, well, but one of, it ain't one, pretty, but you know it. Go ahead. One of it was the dread disease. The dread I mean, disease, that was it. Right. Yeah. And, and, and uh, Cleveland, the, the tumor was actually on the roof of his mouth. And so he felt a little rough spot, a bump on the roof of his mouth. Well, um, Grant had died uh, less than 10 years before, right? When did Grant die? 1880. It was actually uh, during Cleveland's first term, 1885, I think. Yeah. But anyway, so Grant had died like five to 10 years earlier. And Grant had had a, an oral cancer. He had cancer of the throat. And cancer at the time was just considered a death sentence. I mean, there was really, it was considered incurable. People, that's why they called it the dread disease. The newspapers wouldn't even say the word. You know, it was the disease that no, no, no doctor names. Um, and, and so uh, the, the prognosis was not good, uh, first of all, just from a strictly medical standpoint. And then so politically, uh, it was also not good because people would just consider you a dead man if, you, if they knew you had cancer. And that's what Cleveland really feared is that with the country in such turmoil, the economy, uh, it, you know, basically spiraling into a depression. It was the worst depression in American history to that time. Um, that if people knew he, he, you know, had this death sentence hanging over his head, um, that it would just make the panic even worse. So, yeah, cancer was really regarded as uh, something to be feared, nothing but fear. When does Cleveland start to realize something is wrong? And how does he realize that you said he was uh, rubbing the roof of his, of his mouth there? Right. And then uh, I would just also add to that, um, he now realizes uh, he's going to be on the list of presidents who are going to be hiding his illnesses. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Chester Arthur, right. uh, Woodrow Wilson, FDR, JFK. Of course, he doesn't know those last few yet. Mm -hmm. But but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, yeah so I guess it's, uh, uh, I think it's in uh, April or May that he first notices this bump on the roof of his mouth. It was on the left-hand side. It's where he chewed cigars. He, he loved cigars. He would often not smoke them. He just liked to chew them in his mouth. Yeah, it's kind of gross. Oof. But uh, I'm making a face. He can see yeah. my face. Brutal. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, but that's, that's where this spot was. And so he, he was a little worried about it. Um, but as I said, he had a lot going on at the time. Uh, his wife was newly pregnant too. Um, so the home life... <laughs> That really had a lot on his plate, yeah, right, and and something on his palate, um, right. and uh, so he uh, he finally asked his his family doctor, a guy named Joseph Bryan, a fairly prominent New York surgeon, uh, to take a look at it. And Bryan finally looked at it in uh, June of eighteen ninety three, and he called it a, a bad looking tenant. Uh, again, the doctor not wanting to use the C word, and uh, said that uh, it should be removed uh, as quickly as possible. And so that's when the plans were made for this operation to take, take place on, on his friend's boat. Would this have eventually killed him? Is this the type of it, cancer that could have spread it's, and gone? It, yeah, it's, uh, well, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> they, the, 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 the kind of cancer he had, and I go into it in the book, and I majored in folklore, so my medical knowledge is not... Not very keen. Well, I majored in journalism, so maybe. Right. So between the two yeah. of us, we'll get yeah. this diagnosed. No doctors here. Um, they um, uh, actually, uh, since the tumor had been saved in the 1980s, uh, the doctor, there were doctors uh, at uh, Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia who uh, asked to examine the tumor 
and find out what it was. And then they actually found out it's called ver varicose, varicose carcinoma. It's a very slow growing and generally doesn't uh, metastasize. But of course, if, it, if it, it, it continues to grow in the mouth, it would eventually kill you because you wouldn't be able to eat, you wouldn't be able to breathe. So it had, it had to be removed no matter what. Uh, so it, I think it was less uh, deadly than they uh, knew at the time, but generally it's accepted the treatment they did was, is what you would have to do today. It would have to be radical surgery to get it out. So the, decisions, uh, the decision is made. We're going to take them to a boat. Um, basically, you describe it in the book. There's a bunch of people sitting around one night, and they basically yep. figure out, hey, we got to take them to the Oneida, it was called, right? So, yeah, Oneida was the name of the uh, yacht that his friend uh, E.C. Benedict owned. Um, and what they did is uh, 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 Cleveland decided, first and foremost, he wanted to keep the thing secret. Didn't want the public to know. Didn't want his vice president to know. Uh, so where are you going to have the operation if you're going to do it in secret? Well, you can't really do it at the White House. Well, he had a, he had a summer home up on Cape Cod on Buzzards Bay, and uh, he often went there in the summer to fish. And at the time, it wasn't unusual for the president to leave Washington for four weeks in the summer. I mean, everybody left Washington in the summer. It was miserable. So, uh, so the plan was that the, the, the cover story would be he's just going to take the boat, his friend's yacht, up to Buzzards Bay to do some fishing. They recruited a team, uh, I think it was six doctors uh, altogether to do the operation. They told the crew of the boat that he just needed to have some dental work done and that the fresh sea air was uh, beneficial to him. And so on July Lying 1st- Lying by omission. Lying by omission. Yeah. <laughs> it's I, uh, it's, it, I guess it's dental work. Okay. Yeah. Right. And uh, well, and then when it came out later that you know, this reporter learned about it, reported the truth, and uh, Cleveland's uh, spokesperson uh, uh, basically said, well, he, he had two teeth removed. Well, he did. They just didn't mention the rest of the jaw. The rest of the mouth came out also. Technically, right? yeah, technically yeah. he was not lying. Right. So yeah, so the operation takes place July 1st, beautiful, well, wait, clear so, day. So, so real quick, so I just want to stop you because this was a great moment in the book. Um, July 1st, 1893, describe what we would have seen if we could have been tailing Grover Cleveland that day and watch him leave the White House, because this was a fun part of it, the, the escape, you know. Right, right, right. So he actually goes up to New York on um, uh, the day before. So uh, last day of June, 1893. What's June? Got 30? 30. 30 uh, yeah. June 30th. Uh, the doctors were all secretly assembled ahead of time uh, on the yacht. And they all came from different peers. So nobody would be suspicious that the six, you know, a group of six doctors was going out to the president's, uh, the president's boat. Cleveland takes the train up there. Um, at the time, you had to actually get on a ferry in Jersey City and then take that across the river into Manhattan. The tunnels hadn't been built yet. Uh, and then he gets on the boat that night. The boat's still docked in New York. Um, he has a cigar. Uh, and, uh, and, and chats with the doctors about the upcoming operation. They, uh, they all sleep that night, who knows how well. Uh, the next morning, the boat leaves, uh, heads up the uh, East River uh, into Long Island Sound, and it's not until they get to Long Island Sound then that the doctors can begin getting ready for the operation and sort of be visible. They were afraid if anybody saw them from shore. The operation itself took place underneath in the in the in the saloon they called it uh, just a, a cabin underneath. He was in a chair. They lashed the chair to a mast in the center of the uh, in the center of the room, 
put some pillows under his neck and that's how they did it. So describe uh, the surgery a little bit here. At this point, we do know about antiseptic, um, much different than Garfield. Uh, You know, Garfield was essentially killed because they didn't Mm -hmm. believe what Dr. Lister was saying. Um, But now they do believe Dr. Lister. What what a difference 12 years makes because, uh, yeah, 1881, not a good year for uh, the germ theory. By 1893, and I will say that Keene, who was kind of the lead surgeon on this from Philadelphia, was a very, uh, he, he, he um, you know, he was not a, what do you call it, a Luddite. He, he, he was ready to adopt. He was not afraid to innovate. He, he accepted the germ theory. Um, and he, he uh, made sure that the, the saloon, everything was uh, sanitized. Uh, they did have anesthesia. They had hoped to use um, nitrous oxide, just laughing gas and not ether. Ether will really knock you out, but it's very uh, dangerous. It's very explosive. And of course, they're in this tiny little room in a boat. Um, but it didn't, the, the nitrous didn't knock out Grover enough. So they had to use the ether and that's what really put him under. And then they did the operation. It really, I think it was only, uh, it was like it was an, about hour. an hour. Yeah. Yeah. About an hour. Yeah. Hour. Uh, and they so, took out upper left palate, a couple teeth, a little piece of the jawbone. So describe how they did it. Did they, they had instruments and they literally yeah. that scooping. Um, I remember you describing the scooping. Yeah. yeah. They had like the gelatinous stuff. Um, they had, well, Grover was very adamant that his mustache not be, tampered with. <laughs> so he was very famous for his walrus mustache. And uh, so he didn't want, want that. And obviously no external scar, you can't be cutting in. So they were able to actually reach into his mouth and then sort of cut away the cheek on the inside there. And then they were able to operate completely within the mouth. They had a bone cutting instrument. Uh, they had uh, electrical uh, instruments um, and, and, um, and they used this, this cheek retractor and the bone cutter. And then they would they basically, there was a large mass that they saw once they took out the, the palate that they scooped out as well. And so that, that's the most of the stuff that is on display at the museum. That's the size. Sort of the, the size. Um, yeah. Uh, I, you know, um, golf ball I should have a small, yeah, a little smaller than that. Okay. It's a little yeah. smaller than a golf ball. Okay. So um, but there's two teeth on there too and stuff. So it's, it takes up a pretty good space. So they sew, uh, they, they put them back together, I guess, somehow, and then they so bring they, them they, off the boat. They go, yeah. up, they go up to, they spend a couple days at sea until he's, it took him a couple days to be able to walk. So 4th of July, 1893 comes and goes, the vice, or the president of the United States is whereabouts unknown. All the reporters have gone up to Gray Gables to sort of hang out there while the president's there for the summer. And they're like, where's the president? And they always oh, out fishing. He's just out fishing. Uh, they finally got him but he was okay, recovered enough to be able to walk off the boat under his own power. Gray Gables was a big estate. They kept the reporters back at the barn, so they were far enough away. And this reminds me of, remember how Reagan would get on the helicopter and then be like, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. The reporters would shout questions and like, oh, sorry, I can't hear you. Trump does that so they too, did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't hear you. Sorry. And so they did that with, um, with Grover. He was like far enough away. They could see him walk in, so everything seemed fine. But obviously, he couldn't speak. He had this huge defect in his mouth, a huge cavity. Uh, they require, they uh, recruited um, uh, an oral, uh, what is it, a prosthodontist? It's a, a, a guy that makes a prosthetic devices, yeah, for, for your mouth. And, uh, and he fashioned from a piece of vulcanized rubber, basically a hockey puck, molded it to fit the cavity in his mouth so perfectly. It clipped onto two of his teeth and it clipped up in there. And when that was in place, his speaking voice was completely restored. He would never know. 
Um, and he, he wrote a very, very uh, um, effusive letter to the, to the dentist who did this uh, Obra tour, I think it's called, and uh, thanking him for it because it really did it. Without that, the cover-up's impossible. You know, his speaking voice would be forever altered. Did so Cleveland... With, with, oh, go ahead, yeah. No, no, I was just going to say, once, oh. the, once this was in place and then Cleveland goes back to Washington, I think in August, and gives a speech at a, at a doctor's convention of all things, and, uh, and nobody can detect... There were rumors, um, you know, that he had been ill, but nobody detects anything different in his voice. And so that's sort of what helped keep the ruse. Did Cleveland intend for this to be secret um, until the end of his administration, until he died forever? Yeah, I think he intended it to be secret forever, as long as he could keep it secret. Even though he wrote that letter to the, I mean, he never thought at some right. point the doctor might put this on a wall somewhere or the doctor's grandson or something like that? I, yeah, I, I guess so. Um, you know, it was a little different uh, uh, back then, I think he he expected confidentiality uh, among the doctors, and this gets into the central question of you know the responsibility that the doctors have is ultimately to the patient, to the president. It's not to the people. You know, uh, we don't we don't have a right to know. And so I think uh, Cleveland really uh, really believed in that. Although one of the one of the doctors did eventually. Uh, you know, sort of leak the story, and that's what led this reporter to publish the story. Yeah, so uh, so we're up to E.J. Edwards now. Let's talk about E.J. Edwards yeah. and how he gets this scoop. So uh, one of there were rumors going around that something had happened to Cleveland that he was sick. Uh, like I said, they said, "Oh, he just had a couple of teeth taken out. He has has a has a dental problem." Uh, the dentist, a guy named Hasbrook, he um, uh, he had had to leave the boat early and went back to uh, went back to New York. So he was a little bit out of the loop on what, what the plan was. And E.J. Edwards, who was a reporter for the Philadelphia Press, uh, based in New York, went to Hasbrook and basically told him, Hasbrook, that he had learned that the president had had this operation and would Hasbrook confirm it? And Hasbrook said, well, the information you have is accurate. Um, so I think E.J. Edwards sort of you know, uh, didn't really trick him, but again, wasn't a hundred percent completely honest. He was basically basically reporting a rumor as fact, and then Hasbrook accepted his 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 uh, saying it was a fact, and then confirmed it. And so Hasbrook sort of became the bad guy in all this, but it didn't really matter because Edwards reported this in the press. Cleveland denied it. His uh, press, uh, uh, you know, the the the, the press uh, office his representatives, his cabinet, everybody denied it. And Cleveland had had a reputation for honesty. I mean, one of his nicknames was Grover the Good. Um, he, was, he was known to be honest in his first campaign, you know, the famous story where it came out that he had fathered an illegitimate child. And, and, uh, and when he learned this, he wired his friends back in Buffalo, tell the truth. And uh, the fact that he had fessed up to this uh, won him, I think, more points than... Uh, uh, than the, than the indiscretion cost him. So, uh, Cleveland had all these chips, sort of the honesty chips that he all cashed in on this big lie. And they said, Edwards, who was a very respected reporter had, uh, was a cancer faker and he worked for a Republican newspaper and he couldn't be trusted, et cetera, et cetera. And so well, that's how they kept it, kept it secret. And the second half of, of the book's title, or I guess the subtitle of your book is wherein the supposedly virtuous Grover Cleveland survives a secret surgery at sea and vilifies the courageous newspaper man who dared 
expose the truth. Yeah. This is fake news. Uh, you know, explain how, how far they go in, in blackballing you, you, this guy. Yeah, you, uh, you, you have to be careful, say, well, it wasn't that different back then. But it really, in some ways, it wasn't. The, um, the media was very divided in, in the 1880s and 1890s. I mean, newspapers were blatantly partisan. They were either Republican or Democrat. I mean, some newspapers are still called the Republican or the Democrat. I mean, they weren't, they weren't hiding it. You knew. I right. mean, you bought the paper that, you know, you wanted to, wanted to read, just like you watch Fox News or MSNBC. I mean, you bought the Philadelphia Press if you wanted the Republican point of view. You bought the Philadelphia Times if you wanted the Democrat. Philadelphia Times uh, was owned by a guy who was, McClure was his name, and he was a friend of Cleveland, and he really took the lead in, in, um, in vilifying E.J. Edwards, the reporter for the Philadelphia Press, a competing paper who had reported that Cleveland had this surgery, the printed uh, edi- editorial cartoons, you know, depicting an organ grinder and, you know, and he's the monkey just doing the bid- bidding of the Republicans, that sort of thing. And so uh, they, they mocked him, they discredited him. Uh, Edwards went on to have a, have, a, have a career. He actually was a, a correspondent at the end of his life for the Wall Street Journal right after it began. He sort of carved out a niche in business news after that, but uh, it really hung over his career for the rest of his career that they called him a faker. Did he stick to the story and he must have felt vindicated in 1917. He did. And that's one of the reasons that Keene, the doctor, uh, a good Baptist, he was always felt guilty um, that uh, Keene, I'm sorry, that Edwards, the newspaper reporter had been, uh, been so vilified. And so that was one of the reasons that Keene wanted to finally publish the truth in 1917. Uh, Edwards was still alive and, um, and uh, he was uh, uh, very gratified. In fact, he wrote, uh, wrote a letter to Keene thanking him for this splendid vindication, which was the original title of the book, Splendid Vindication. And the headline of the uh, newspaper um, that uh, you put in the book is The President is a Very right, Sick Man, which is um, a little different. A little bit different, but pretty cool. Yeah. Um, uh, so let me ask, um, how should history judge Grover Cleveland, and how much of a role should this episode play in it? Um, and how did his, how did his presidency go? And I'll just say one thing about that. Uh, the one thing I knew of Grover Cleveland, other than the um, non consecutive terms, is as a kid growing up in New York, you'd go down the New Jersey Turnpike, and there was a rest stop yes. named after yes. Grover Cleveland. Does yes. he deserve more than that? <laughs> um, I have a soft spot for Grover. I, I think. In a way, he was a man uh, out of time. Um, I think he might have made a better president in like, you know, the 1830s or 1840s than the 1880s and 1890s. I think he, the country was changing. It was getting so big. It needed a really boisterous, strong executive, which we got then with, with Roosevelt. I mean, he was, but... Grover Cleveland, I mean, his claim to fame was that he vetoed more bills than any president in history. Uh, Roosevelt finally beat his record, but Roosevelt had more than three terms. So when you do it prorated, Grover is still number one. I mean, he saw his job, his function as the executive is to stop bad legislation from being passed. And at the time, Congress was sort of the superior branch of government in a way. And, uh, and so in this way, he was a genuine conservative, I think, uh, with a small C. He saw his job as, as really uh, uh, kind of a, um, a caretaker managing, not, not really leading. 
Um, and, and but the times I think demanded more leadership uh, than he was willing to give. The Pullman strike comes in then in uh, 1894, terrible strike in Chicago, and and he he really I think the I think the operation they said it changed his 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 mood. He he had a much uh, shorter temper, um, and I, I just think he. He, it was a bad time to be president between the economic problems, labor strife. Then he gets this cancer. He didn't, I don't think he really had a chance in that second term to do much. What Nuts does glad when it was over? What does this all say about how presidents must be watched? Hmm. Uh, it, it goes back to that fundamental question of what, you know, we have a right to know and what they have a right to keep us from knowing. Um, theoretically, you know, the, 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 uh, the Air Force One has an operating theater. I mean, the White House has an operating theater. You know, you might, I don't think you could do a radical surgery like this, but you might be able to get away with something else. That's why I was telling, I thought that uh, uh, President Trump had to go to Walter Reed. I mean, there's a lot, you can get first class care in the White House. So, if they have to send you to the hospital, it, it, it must be pretty bad. Um, but to answer your question, I think all presidents must be watched very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, uh, what further parallels did you see with this? Did, I mean, did the bell start going off in your head as you're watching a president being taken from the White House and saying, ah, this is just like Grover Cleveland, or it's not just like Grover Cleveland, right. maybe a little um, bit of both? Yeah, it, it's funny. Uh, and in the book, I go into some of the other things. And you mentioned Harding, um, uh, Kennedy, uh, Wills. I mean, it's, it, it's almost as many presidents have had medical cover-ups that have, had, had, that have not had them. Um, Eisenhower had, of course, a pretty serious heart attack or even a minor stroke. Um, uh, and, and presidents are loathe to appear weak. It's this thing. Uh, they just don't. It's, it's one of this, you know, vestiges of, 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 you know, sort of 19th century masculinity that there could never be, uh, you know, I mean, look, Jimmy Carter kind of like couldn't run a finish in the marathon or whatever, and people were like making fun of him. So it's, it's the kind of thing that uh, presidents just hate uh, to admit uh, to uh, a shortcoming, especially some kind of ailment like this. And I think, you know, they probably always will. So it's, it's, it's really a tough question. I mean, how do you, what do you do? Maybe make a commission that has a right to know. I mean, we have the, is it the 25th amendment where if the president's incapacitated that the cabinet can, but that's never, you're never going to find a cabinet to do that. You know, I mean, there's just really no independent way to verify that a president is healthy and competent. I have asked um, Washington scholars how they would redesign the Washington Monument because there's always talk about whether it's the right um, the it's it's the right image to have of our first president. Um, I would probably ask a similar question of a Lincoln scholar, although I haven't had to yet. But if, I think the Lincoln Memorial is generally accepted as being um, a pretty fitting tribute to the 16th president. Um, I do want to ask if there was going to be a Grover Cleveland Memorial designed by you, Matthew Algio, what would it look like? What would it have? Where would it be? 
there is a there's a nice statue of Grover in Buffalo, um, and he's he's buried in Princeton. Um, you know, I, I would say this: I would put him behind a desk. If I was going to do a statue, I would put him behind a desk. And uh, one of my favorite pictures, I think it's in the book. He's be, I mean, his desk is looks like well, it looks like my wife's desk right now, but it's just like <laughs> piled high with like stuff everywhere. You can't imagine how much real actual paper they used back then and how many times a day he had to sign his name. He had to sign every postmaster commission. So anyway, I would put him behind a desk and I would, I would do it in Buffalo. I think Buffalo needs to embrace Grover Cleveland a lot more than they have. I mean, I don't know, it's going to turn into a, you know, major tourist attraction, but you know, it can't hurt. I'll go. Yeah, I'll go too. Would it be inside or would it be visible? Would it be in a museum or would it be visible to the public? No, I would put him out. I would put him Outside. in the park. Yeah. I'd yeah. put him on the I'd put him on the street where they where all the bars are. I yeah, you know? in Delaware. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. And oh, uh yeah. yeah, and I'm sure like people would like, you know, rub his mustache, you know, and all the bronze would come all like that and be shiny and stuff. You Good get luck. the wing yeah. sauce all over him. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that would be nice. Matthew um, Algio, uh, the author of they the did, they did do yeah, they please, did yeah. do they they did do uh, um, you know they did the commemorative gold dollar um, coins at the mint. They had a presidential series where they did all the presidents, and so he deserves uh, to I be did, in gold. Yeah, well, yes, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah, which gold on one side, silver on the yeah. other. But I did uh, uh, that. They're actually not gold, of course. Yeah, uh, they're just gold colored. Um, but I have stocked, I stocked up on so many of these uh, Grover Cleveland coins when they came out. Cause I'm like, oh, this would be great to give them away. So it's been like now 10 or 15 years, I'm still giving them to kids on Halloween. <laughs> I have the Halloween. largest supply of the only Grover Cleveland coin there is. Oh, but he was on, uh, he was on the $20 uh, bill for a while. And uh, my wife one year for Christmas got me a Grover Cleveland $20 bill, like in the 19 teens and 20s are they expensive to get can you or is it you yeah. know it, yeah. they're not they're less it's like 50 bucks i think oh. you get another 20 i was going to wrap it up but i just thought of another question um is he a prototype that small c conservatives could follow today yeah you see him cited a lot um as i'm sure you have grover cleveland on your google news alert um like most patriotic Americans, but I'm surprised uh, how often I see articles, uh, uh, you know, in the National Review, a lot of times that people talk about a lot of, lot of small C conservatives regard Grover Cleveland as a great president and in some ways the last great president. His job, like I said, was to veto bills to keep Congress from passing uh, bad legislation. And that sort of the epitomizes uh, uh, true conservatism. Matthew Algio, the author of The President is a Sick Man, wherein the supposedly virtuous Grover Cleveland survives a secret surgery at sea and vilifies the courageous newspaper man who dared expose the truth. Thank you so much for joining us, Matthew. You're welcome, Evan. I enjoyed it. Certainly check out that book and his others on Harry Truman and Bobby Kennedy and also his website, which is mlgo.net. He's active on Twitter at mlgo. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports. 
history, and today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.